Hello and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. Hi there, it's Rob again. This week I'm all alone. Well, of course I've got you, but Liam's away and fortunately today is just a mini-sode. I don't think I could manage talking for a whole hour on my own. Not just yet, anyway. And so, yes, as revealed in the title, uh, this week I'm talking about Matt Smith's second ever episode called The Beast Below. Since this is our first podcast to revisit an episode from Series 5, I might as well give like a brief overview of that series. Obviously, it was Matt Smith's first series, but it also had the honour of being the first series to do kind of a light reboot since the show had first returned back in 2005. Previously, we'd had Eccleston and Tennant, but the show maintained the same format, the same TARDIS, same visuals and music, same screwdriver, and of course the same showrunner. So series 5 was something to be really excited about, um, especially because Stephen Moffat was going to be the new showrunner, given that he was responsible for some of the more well-received episodes during Russell's era, including a two-part story, The Empty Child, Doctor Dances, or remember that from series 1, The Girl in the Fireplace, uh, Blink, I know everyone talks about that, um, still to this day, and that was based on Stephen Moffat's ninth Doctor short story called What I Did on My Christmas Holidays by Sally Sparrow. And of course, another two-parter of his which introduced River Song, The Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. So I'm just holding my Series 5 DVD. I still haven't upgraded to Blu-ray yet, although I have from the Day of the Doctor onwards, so I've got the Capaldi's on Blu-ray. Um, and the episode list for Series 5 is the 11th hour. And the first episode, I know everyone seems to like that. Um, I wasn't so sure at the time. The Beast Below, I'll tell you my thoughts on that um, coming up in the podcast. Victory of the Daleks. Um, I did like that. The new paradigm thing. I know everyone kind of hates that, but I don't really see where all the hate came from because, you know, ultimately in Doctor Who, when you're presented with something new, there's no point in really worrying about it because further down the line everything changes anyway so I kind of wish they'd been a bit more brave and kept the new Paradigm Daleks in the show for a bit longer. I feel like they kind of gave in to the backlash from fans um, and they kind of bottled it and went back to the 2005 Daleks for a while. Um, Time of Angels and Flesh and Stone. Um, probably my favourite of the episodes from them, series 5. Vampires in Venice, that was a good one. And then the episode Amy's Choice, that's the one starring Toby Jones, I think. And of course he appeared in Dark Eyes, the first um, series of Dark Eyes starring Paul McGann and Ruth Bradley. Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. Um, I'm probably going to have to revisit those, I haven't watched them in quite a long time. Vincent and the Doctor, another one of my favourites. The Lodger, um, 
I feel like I should just be honest and admit that I'm not the biggest fan of James Corden. I don't know if everyone else is, but um, I did enjoy The Lodger, kind of regardless. And Pandorica opened in The Big Bang. I thought that was a good finale, especially considering that there was no big villain to face off against. It was quite a good two-parter. There was also, I remember, a 3D teaser trailer for the series. It's the one with kind of Amy in a vortex with all the villains flying around. And that was presented in, in 3D at the cinema. Um, I never got to see that, um, so I'm wondering if anyone else did. Some new exciting changes for the series that we're all looking forward to. The new openings, opening music and... Of course, the Doctor Who logo. Um, I thought it was a bit odd because it had the the DW logo in the centre. It's like the show was all of a sudden called Doctor DW Who. <laughs> like that is um, his middle initials. <laughs> so I'll get on with my revisitation of The Beast Below. Here's a brief synopsis from the Doctor Who wikia. For Amy Pond's first trip in the TARDIS, the 11th Doctor brings his new companion to the 29th century, where all of the United Kingdom citizens, apart from the Scottish, live on board the Starship UK, searching for a new home amongst the stars as the Earth is being roasted by solar flares. However, the Doctor soon finds something amiss on board the vessel. The citizens appear to fear the smiling fellows in the booths and ignore the crying children. What is going on? What secrets does Starship UK hold in its depths? And who is hiding them? Soon the Doctor is forced to make an impossible choice. No matter what the choice is, death is the only outcome. That's very bleak. So here's a few of my notes after re-watching the episode. The exterior shot of the Starship UK um, is pretty nice. As long as you don't stare at it for too long. Um, because there isn't a great amount of detail there. For the sake of this review, I'm re-watching my DVD, um, though I'm sure the Blu-ray does offer a bit more visually. The one big bugbear in this scene for me though is the added bubble BBC logo that kind of blobs around on screen. Um, I think naturally that did annoy a lot of other people too. Um, does the Blu-ray have this? I'm not sure. You can see a few landmarks in the skyline. You can see Yorkshire, Devon, Surrey, Kent, Essex. No sign of Newcastle. Um, I imagine one, it's one of the really nice looking ones though. And then after this establishing shot, we get to the first scene, which is in a classroom um, with a few kids lining up to be praised by the teacher. In this case though, the teacher is a mannequin in a glass cabinet um, with a rotating head the so-called smilers. It's not quite how I remember school. Um, I'll ask Liam if he remembers it a bit differently when he gets back, um, because of course we went to school together. Anyway, so this boy in this class um, has received a zero, and as a result he has to walk home rather than take the lift. Of course he takes the lift anyway, you know, who wouldn't, <laughs> unless you're gonna die. <laughs> And as he takes the lift, the smiler looks at him with an angry face and the floor opens and he falls below. And is this perhaps sending the wrong message to kids? Um, if you're not good at school, then like this is what will happen to you. 
And is it just me, or does anyone else think if you put a black curly wig on the Smilers, they kind of look like Stephen Moffat? No? Maybe it's just me. Um, we catch up with the Doctor and Amy, and she's floating outside the TARDIS. This follows on from a um, prequel scene that you can see on the DVD. And with Amy floating outside the TARDIS, this is reminiscent of the woman who fell to Earth. You know, in the final scene where the 13th Doctor is adrift with um, Graham, Yaz and Ryan. So, the Doctor seems to know the Starship UK when he looks down and sees it. And he says that the Earth was evacuated in the 29th century because of solar flares. Right away this reminded me of the Tom Baker story, The Ark at Space where the Earth was expected to be uninhabitable for 5,000 years or so, and a select group of humans were frozen aboard a space station and waiting to return and repopulate the planet. But the evacuation of Earth in the arc of space, um, I think far postdates the one in the Beast Below by a few thousand years. And you know, it's this really profound thing, the Starship UK, this idea that we'll all live together united. Um, you know, maybe there was just a quick referendum before the solar flares hit. Um, and sadly for the ones who voted remain, solar flares killed them. When the Doctor and Amy go out of the TARDIS to explore, we get to see the interior of the ship. And as the Doctor puts it, everything's back to basics. And this is true, but in a more exaggerated way than you might imagine with um, this vintage touch of British styles. It looks like an old-fashioned memorabilia museum. And you know, they walk in the streets of the London block and it would seem that they're being watched by the actor Terence Hardiman. And it's worth noting because he now plays the Time War era incarnation of Rassilon for Big Finish. It's not the first time a Big Finish Rass has made an appearance in New Who. The first being Don Warrington in Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel. And also Don Warrington has had the honour of playing both President of Great Britain and the President of Gallifrey now. But going back to Terence, to me he'll always be the Demon Headmaster. I like how Moffat included a hole in the road, another British hallmark. <laughs> They're everywhere. I bet there's a few in the Newcastle block. And when Amy questions where are all the Scottish people, the young girl tells her that they took their own ship. It's like they finally got their independence, so I like that bit. Anyway, back to the hole in the road, Amy finds this kind of protruding creature with this impaling kind of razor tip, and it attacks her. This reminded me of this creature in Half-Life 1, if anyone played that. So... Soon Liz 10 meets the Doctor and she's been doing this similar thing that the Doctor's been doing. Putting a glass of water on the floor and watching to see if um, there's any vibrations from the engine. And this is where the mystery kind of really begins. And of course we'll find out that the ship actually has does have no engines, yeah. And then the plot gets a lot more interesting when Amy is presented with the truth on the monitor and she, she decides to forget. And then this is followed by part of the episode that I like when the doctor walks in and presses the protest button and where they drop down a chute. So not quite democracy. <laughs> and then um, when they land, Amy says the floor is quite rubbery and wet. 
And then we see the doctor's realization on his face of where they are. And he's like, uh, it's not a flaw, it's, um, and the next word is quite a scary word. <laughs> and then it turns out that they're actually stood on a giant tongue. And what happens next to the doctor and Amy is a bit vague. Um, of course, the doctor makes the whale sick, and apparently they just come out of an overspill pipe and wake up. Which I guess kind of makes sense because this is how all the children got out. And then, once they're out of their whale's mouth, they're presented with this other opportunity to vote. Naturally, the doctor refuses, and this is when we see the smilers stand up and get out of their booths, which is kind of cool. Like two bald, livid Stephen Moffats walking towards you. <laughs> but bang on time, Liz Tennant is to the rescue. I like the idea presented here that the royal family has been brought up on stories of the Doctor. We need to see him some more of those on screen, I think. Liz mentions a few of them. The Doctor was an old drinking buddy of Henry Twelfth. Tea and scones were Liz too. Okay, maybe we don't need that story, but that's kind of cool. Um, Liz 10 says, Vicky was a bit on the fence about you, weren't she? Knighted and exiled on the same day. Of course, this is re referencing Tooth and Claw. And she also mentions um, the Virgin Queen. And when she says this, I was hoping for some kind of reaction from Matt's face, but sadly we didn't get that. And of course, this is a reference to what David Tennant said to the Ooze in The End of Time Part 1. And then, in the 50th anniversary, we'd learn that The End of Time Part 1 comes directly after the day of the Doctor. With the scene in Liz Ten's room, Liz is saying how she's been on the throne for 10 years and the Doctor begins to suspect that maybe this isn't the case when he notices her porcelain mask um, which is perfectly sculpted to her face, which is very old. The mask is old, I mean, not her face. <laughs> and then after this, um, the winders walk in and it's these monk dudes and one of them Rotates his head and he's got this Smiler's angry face on the other side. A bit weird. And they're all taken down to the dungeon where they meet um, the head of the Winders, the Demon Headmaster. And this is where Liz learns that she's in fact hundreds of years old um, by this point. And she's been living in a cycle of um, discovering the truth and choosing to forget over and over. And then the Doctor is very cross with Amy for choosing to forget earlier on when she pressed the forget button. Um, this is actually quite similar to what the Doctor did to Adam in the long game. We did a podcast on that, um, I think it was about a month ago, you can check that out. But in the long game, for so many reasons, the Doctor kind of banishes Adam from the TARDIS and takes him home. And, this, and he kind of does this to Amy in this story, almost. And even though Amy can't even remember what she did, he still the Doctor still holds in her to our actions, and he says he'll take her home when it's all done. And then the Doctor's now left with the choice of either freeing the Star Whale, killing the UK in the process, or forgetting and letting the ship just fly on as it always has. And I think this story reminds us that Life doesn't always present us with problems that simply have, you know, like a morally right or wrong answer. Sometimes when it feels that there's no right answer, life is about finding a compromise. 
And when you make these apparently morally wrong choices, you can tell yourself that there was no other way, and you can kind of choose to look the other way and forget. But at what cost, you know? Um, is it a guilt you can live with? And you can look back at what they did and think, was it the right or the wrong thing to do? Um, whether the UK had made the right choice, trapping the whale when they did. I think they clearly felt obliged um, to do what they did in order to save their children. And that kind of throws another interesting dynamic into the mix, doesn't it? It's like our fundamental duty that's hardwired in like, to protect our kids. And I think that kind of choice transcends having to choose what is the morally right thing to do. So as the Doctor faces a choice in the story, he abandons the two apparent options that he had and instead chooses a compromise. He can free the Star Whale from its suffering by rendering it kind of brain dead and let the inhabitants continue living there. And then there's a cool moment he says, after he's done this, he'll not be the Doctor anymore. And this is a good comparison to the War Doctor, I think. And this also reminds me of an episode in Torchwood's second series called Meat, when this large alien creature is trapped in a warehouse and Owen kills it to end its suffering. When the Doctor is busying on with his plan, Amy sees how the children are treated by the Star Whale's um, you know, there's protruding arm things that come out the floor. And then I think she starts to piece everything together, you know, um, just as the Doctor does. She's been making observations, paying attention, and she starts to see a big similarity between the Doctor and the Star Whale. Both the last of their kind, both compelled to help when there's a crying child involved, and she has a hunch, which would turn out to be right, that if they free the whale, um, it'll be willing to stay. So she grabs Liz Ten's hand and presses it against the abdicate button. So when you consider not just our civilization, but also the Doctor and the Star Whales share this view of putting children's well-being first, even at the risk of your own safety and well-being. So it's nice to imagine that this might be a universal quality. And finally, I love the little bit of continuity for the next episode in Victory of the Daleks with Churchill ringing the TARDIS. Really kind of helps the series flow um, a bit better from episode to episode. My one question I'm left with is, you know, do they still need to feed people to the Star Whale? <laughs> I'll leave you to ponder that for a bit. And over to a couple of your opinions now. Hoovian in the TARDIS on Twitter said about the Beast Below, It's underrated. I really like how the Star Whale stayed because he couldn't bear to hear the children crying. Theta Sigma's Doctor Who podcast said, Underrated in many respects. It came too early in Matt Smith's time sadly. While he was very good at this, and his angry scene towards the end is outstanding, the rest of the scripting was a bit messy. Great turn by Liz Ten though. Um, it came out too early in Matt's era. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with that. So possibly it could have been pulled off to a greater success uh, a little later down the line. Thanks for messaging. You can follow the Theta Sigma podcast on Twitter at Theta Who and check out their podcast on Apple Podcasts and many other places too. 
So a quick conclusion from me, it was a very ambitious episode, quite early on in match run, but similar to the end of the world, etc. Um, but it seemed to pull it off just fine. I love the mystery and the smilers and Liz 10. It's definitely a rewatchable episode with a few negatives. But in ratio to the other episodes in series 5, uh, I think I'm going to have to give The Beast Below a 7 out of 10. So if you've been listening today, thank you very much. I hope um, I haven't bored you too much. Liam will be back next week where we'll be talking about a Colin Baker audio drama from Big Finish called The Marion Conspiracy. Thank you again for listening um, to my Beast Below ramblings and see you next week. Goodbye.